Last week we talked about God being Jewish. Uh, the point of this week's class is to do something which I think is a little bit more uh, fundamental in a way, which is talk about whether it is allowable um, to relate to God using any of the language we use to refer to human beings, which is, I think, the way that we normally think about relationships in general. So, meaning, do we think about God as being in a separate category of entities, and we have to kind of invent a whole other vocabulary to talk about relationships with God or to describe what God is, or can we borrow some of that language from discussions of people? So, like, this is, like, a lot of that stake here. A lot of the topics for uh, future classes are like talking about God as a king, God as a judge, God as a woman, whatever it happens to be, are all in some way uh, dependent on this. So what we're going to do today is talk about um, descriptions in Judaism of God. Um, start out by kind of unpacking, I think, what is a misconception that Judaism always thinks about God as having... Uh, no, as being non-corporeal, uh, as having no body. Um, but I don't want this year just to be about like demonstrating that that perspective is wrong. I want it to also be about saying that if God does have a body, um, as we'll see some of these sources seem to indicate, what kind of body is that? <coughs> How does that body work in relation to human beings? And like, what significance does that body have uh, for us? So, um, just to start out... Um, Source number one, some of you may be familiar with. Um, Maimonides says there's five who are called Menian heretics. Uh, one who says that there is no God and that the world has no ruler. Okay. Makes sense. One who says that it has a ruler, but that there are two or more, uh, which we actually talked about last week, that there are perspectives in Judaism which suggest that perhaps there are, there are more than one God present at the same time. Um... One who says that there is one Lord, but he has a body and can be depicted. He is, uh, in Maimonides' language, Baal Tzmuna. Um, so this is the one that we're going to be focusing on today. Uh, Maimonides is clearly against this idea, but immediately, um, in fact, in most printed editions of uh, Maimonides, uh, this appears in the, in the same paragraph. There's a comment by um, a rabbi called Ravad, uh, Rabbi uh, Abraham ben David of Pasquiers, who lived in the 12th century, who says, uh, this is uh, source number two, one who says that there is one Lord, but he has a body and can be depicted. Abraham said, why is this one called a heretic? Abraham is, he's talking about himself, because uh, his name is Abraham. That's, he, just, he, that's he just, just how he does he, it. He just rolls like that. He just rolls like that. How many rabbis, greater and better than him, Maimonides, held this opinion in accordance with uh, with whom they found in scriptural verses, and even more what they found in the words of those Agatot, which corrupt right opinion about religious matters. So this is kind of the um, classic formulation of an incorporeal god, and then the classic kind of um, rebuttal of that position, saying Maimonides uh, does not know what he's talking about if he's trying to speak for all of Jewish tradition. Um, Rabbah does not explain who these people who are greater and better and all that are who disagree with them. Um, we're going to see some of them later on. But before we do that, um, I want to introduce like two, what we'll call it, two basic, two different models for how Judaism um, or Jewish sources have thought about God as a person. One of those models, um, like last week, shows up in earlier sources. One of them shows up more in later sources. I think they, they both exist to some degree today. 
um, but they're worth kind of teasing out. Um, so I've called them Model A and Model B uh, because of the confusion about last week's numbering scheme. Um, okay, so Model A. Um, source number three, this is from Yoshua. Came to pass when Joshua was led by, was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there stood a man opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand, and Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you with us or with your enemies? And he said, sorry, it should be, and with, with or with our enemies. And he said, No, rather, I am captain of the host of the Lord. I have now arrived. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Take your shoe off your foot, for the place on which you stand is holy, and Joshua did so. Okay. Um, who, is, who is the uh, person with whom Joshua is speaking in this story? Who is the entity with whom Joshua is speaking? Yeah. Um, I'm assuming some kind of angel. So, in um, the way we normally understand uh, the Bible, when somebody comes to a human being presenting some message from God, we understand that to be a message from an angel. Now, we say, first of all, like, it's totally unclear like, what angels are um, and how angels are related to, um, to God himself. Um, in describing this passage, uh, something that uh, James Kugel, who's a professor of Bible, talks about is that there is a theme here and many other places uh, in Tanakh which describe like, an encounter between a divine being and a human being which is that humans often are very confused at the beginning when, when God talks to them or when an angel talks to them. So you'll have, so you see in this story, for example, like, so it's like someone just like, you know, without warning, comes up to Joshua and says like, okay, I'm here, um, sword drawn, doesn't explain who he is, there's no like halo around his head or anything, he's just some person. Um, and it actually takes him, it takes this, uh, this being explaining to Joshua, like, you should know, like, I'm with God. Like, I'm, I'm one of God's people. For Joshua to be like, oh, okay, great, wonderful. Um, and there were other situations uh, in Tanakh as well where there's a similar kind of initial confusion about um, the presence of uh, a divine entity. Can you think of other examples where there's maybe some confusion about, like, being confronted with God or not with God? Yeah? I'm remembering, right, when the angels come to visit Abraham... Sure. So it's not clear who these visitors are. Yeah, and I mean, and this text um, well, is probably linked to that one in some way from the last line about uh, removing your shoes because you're on holy ground. Yeah. Um, another prominent example is on the next page. Um, um, story uh, from Breshit uh, Lamentet which describes uh, this struggle between uh, Yaakov and this person. And it's important to know, like, if you or I have learned this story before, undoubtedly we've understood the man, uh, what is described here as a man, to be actually an angel or some kind of divine being. But the text itself never says that. The text itself says it's a man who Jacob is, um, is wrestling with, but it's pretty difficult to understand these verses um, without recognizing that this man is, some, is something more than just a man. Like, it has to be some other kind of supernatural entity. Otherwise, the story has no relevance. Um, and again, 
Um, it's unclear that, uh, that Jacob recognizes at the beginning of the story um, that this is a divine being, but it kind of, uh, towards the end of the story, it becomes revealed. Um, other, can you give me another example of a place where Jacob is unaware initially that he's in the presence of God and then becomes later aware? Place where he has those dreams. Right, so the story of Jacob and his ladder, he dreams, wakes up from the dream and says, like, oh, you know, I wish I'd known that, like, that God was here. Um, so, again, another kind of moment of surprise. Now, um, what James Kugel has kind of pointed out in these passages is that, first of all, um, in these encounters, it is not um, human beings who are kind of seeking out God or seeking out angels. It's always the angels or God kind of confronting people. And secondly, that it's not so clear that this is an angel. And it's possible to read this, uh, to read some of these texts, as being about God himself confronting human beings. Um, and you see, a couple of, you see a couple of hints at that in this text in particular. One is in um, verse 31, Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, which means, I have seen God face to face. Right? So he says, like, that's what, that's what happened here. I saw God face to face. It doesn't say I saw an angel face to face. Now you could say, you know, he's understanding the angel to be representative of God. Uh, he's not calling it like Pini Malach or something. Like, he's trying to connect it to God. But, you know, on the surface, um, Jacob seems to indicate that he's seen God. And um, a couple verses earlier, um, this man says to Jacob in uh, verse 29, no more, shall you, no, more, no more shall you be called Jacob at Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Kisarita im Elohim v'im anashim Not you struggled with divine beings, but you struggled with God. Uh, presumably meaning you've just struggled with me, and I'm God, um, as one reading of this. So, so what Kubel points out is that... Um, it's never explicit in these texts that uh, it is God who is confronting human beings face to face, but <laughs> there's also not so much clarity about the difference between God coming and, and, and encountering people and angels encountering people. That, that boundary is a little bit murky um, in, in these texts. So um, because of that, you can understand this um, as being uh, a kind of relationship with God where God is manifest as a human being. And in fact, looks so much like a human being that like, people don't know that he's not until he says something to the effect. Uh, questions about this stuff? So, yeah. Yeah, I guess I'm confused about like why does it matter if it's God versus an angel? Like, it kind of seems like these ideas are very, very connected, like almost like there isn't really necessarily a, like, a, like, a, like a line. Right, so for Kugel, I think Kugel would say that the Bible would agree with you. It doesn't really matter if it's God or an angel. Um, you know, it's all basically the same. I mean, I have something to say that, and I have something else to say about this. Um, <clears throat> but what I would say to that is, it matters in the sense that when you're encountering an angel, you're encountering God. You're encountering God indirectly as opposed to directly. And you know, we we also seem to have this long tradition within the Torah that God can't be encountered directly. You know, even even Moshe, you know, doesn't get to see God face to face when he when he asks to. Um, the other thing I would say to this is this, this seems very Heschelian, which makes me kind of surprised that you're bringing it in here. Say a little bit more. Well, it seems that man is not going in search of God. God is going in search of man. Yes, that's very much this model. This is a model where, where God is seeking people out. Um, and on the point about um, 
the Bible saying that people cannot confront God face to face, um, at the, ver- the last few lines of this paragraph, Jacob says, my life has been preserved. Meaning like one of the things that he understands as being remarkable about his encounter is not just that he's encountered God, but that he's still alive to tell the tale. Um, which matches up with uh, what we find elsewhere in Tanakh, that um, there is something uh, dangerous about encountering God. God says to Moshe, for example, which we were talking about earlier, you know, no one can see my face and live. Um, suggesting that like human beings recognize that they should be fearful about encounters like this. Um, but, so just like to say again, um, a couple things about Model A. Um, this is a model in which, perhaps it's like the simplest model to understand, which is, you know, God existing as a person, or, can, or existing at times as a person. Um, this is a model in which uh, human beings can talk to God, but God is also kind of so ordinary as to be unknown to people uh, without, um, without their indicating it. And one other thought like, on the yeah. ordinariness is that, like at least in the example of Yeshua, like he takes it very much at face value. Like after that moment of surprise, like, oh, I didn't realize you were a uh, servant of God or whatever. Uh, and it's like, but it's it's like implicit. Like of course you really are. You're not a crazy person. Just saying that they they, they take it like very much at face value. Right. So there's a recognition, and this is, is similar also to things that you find in uh, Greek myths. People know that like the 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 boundary between heaven and earth is kind of blurry, that sometimes gods walk among men, and that's cool, and like, maybe they don't expect it to happen to them personally, but if it does happen, they're not totally surprised, and like, I can't believe this is really happening. Like, they kind of roll with it once it happens. <laughs> um, so that is, um, that seems to be part of this as well, um, that recognition. Now, just, just to kind of like, um, put an asterisk on that, as in Greek myth, it is difficult to know whether there were ever Jews who believed that God, that the Jewish God walked among them, or whether this was only something that they wrote about happening to previous generations. I mean, like, there's a difference between, like, um, and if you're interested, there's a great book about this um, by Paul Vane called Did the Greeks Believe Their Myths? Uh, which is to say, like, if you went up to an, uh, somebody in ancient Greece and said, like, you know, uh, how's Zeus doing these days? They'd be like, what are you talking about? But they don't, they didn't actually expect to see Zeus or to interact with him, they recognized that when, uh, like, kind of in the realm of literature, um, there were different rules at play. So it may be that this kind of model A only exists in text, never actually existed as a, as a mode in which people expected to uh, interact with God. Um, okay. Now, uh, just to kind of flesh out this model a little bit more, so you might ask, well... Um, God also says that he doesn't want images of him. Now, I think we normally understand the reason that God doesn't want us to make images um, is that you can't make an image of God. Um, any image would be a sham because um, God is undepictable. Um, how might you understand the prohibition on kind of uh, creating images, creating icons um, with this understanding, with Model A? Well, I mean, it's, so it's, it's, it is still a problem, but what's the problem now? It could potentially have an image, and we can do it wrong. Like, if, if we had, have seen God, like, if these people have seen God, like, there is, this, like, like, or some sort of, like, angel of God, there is this, like, idea that, like, he's a man, and he's a, like, I don't know. Right, so, 
if you create some kind of golden calf, God is walking around. Why would you create a golden calf? Like, he might show up any day. He might show up any second. Um, you're just going to distract yourself with these objects which cannot move and are not God. Um, so it's still a problem, but it's a different kind of problem. Um, What's the line between this and prophecy in terms of, I mean, I guess it's just that prophecy sort of comes through somebody who is still claiming a fundamentally human form. So yeah. one, of the, one of the tropes that you find in many, many books of prophecy is that prophets do not ask to be prophets. God just shows up one day and says, like, I've chosen you. And they don't have a choice about it, and sometimes their life sucks because of it, like, they just have to go into it. Um, so, and some of the prophets, like, you know, descriptions of, like, uh, of Jeremiah being chosen, like, in the womb, like, they're, um, it's just, it's a calling, God comes to you, and that's, that's the, you don't have anything else to say about it. Um, but, yeah, but, so prophets are, like, actually a good example of, like, <clears throat> of this kind of interaction. Um, but that's something that people believed in happening concurrently um, with, right, I mean. Yeah, so I wonder if, for the prophets, like, if they, so first of all, like, it's a little bit different in that, like, it, there it's usually not descriptions of God's body, like, it's, it's God that kind of calling you, but not necessarily like, goes along with, like, God as being, like, a person talking to you face to face. Although we'll see in a second there's uh, some important exceptions to that. Um, there might be different because it's, it's a message as opposed to kind of like God uh, directly performing something, but yeah, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also might be kind of rhetorical to us. I don't know. Um, so, what's nice about this way of thinking about God? Let's say nice things about this, and we'll say not nice things about this. Like, what, what strikes you as being compelling about this? There's an aspect to which God becomes more real, less abstract. Like the, pro- the knowing that there is the prospect of someday bumping into God uh, makes it such that even if you don't bump into God, like you know that that's a possibility, uh, and there's something like very tangible and, and compelling about that. Right, and that kind of um, and because of there's kind of naturalness to this way of thinking about about God as being just you know one more person you might bump into on the street on any given day. Um, it doesn't require you to kind of um, invent some other way of thinking about a relationship with God. It just gets you to use the same one that you have with everybody else. Yeah. It's a lot less confusing than negation theology. It's a lot less confusing, yeah. Um, perhaps this is the least confusing of all. Um, to say, you know, God's around. God might show up. It also, like, I think it's... I mean, I think we think of it as sort of silly, but uh, I think it does, like, factor into, like, modern Jewish thinking and the idea of, like, a messiah that could be, like, among the people. Yeah, uh, so it's interesting. You, the, the idea that, like, there are, you know, supernatural entities which show up among humans unbidden Continues even if those beings aren't God. So, you, you know, like perhaps the Messiah, or there are many stories about Eliyahu and Navi, Elijah the prophet, just kind of just showing up um, unannounced um, for people. Um, so yeah, so that idea is is like still very compelling, even if you're not talking about God directly anymore. Even like with with like Laman Vav Nix, like said, like, that are just like that are around, holy of the world. Like it's similar. It's not the same thing, but it's just like. 
there's something compelling about that idea of like any person can be like the most important person. Right. So so just even without ever having an actual experience, just knowing that it's a possibility yeah. changes the relationship with the world. Yeah. Yeah, it's also, I mean, I think, I think this sort of, that it's familiar but not too familiar is kind of appealing too, right? That it's like, it's like, well, you know, you, yeah, you could, you could maybe, you can, I mean, well, putting aside the point about not this, not this be, not being a sort of a experience that you expect in a given time, I mean, that it's something that, you know, it's it familiar but it's still, it comes in, in, in dreams or, you know, that this is sort of common trope of looking up your eyes and, like, so all of a sudden something is there that you didn't notice before. I mean, is that something that, you know, it doesn't make it too familiar, but also is kind of a very recognizable way of looking. So what don't you like about this? That Model A. There's also something strange about the idea that God is like kind of walking around. Thank you. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and why is it strange? I don't know. I mean, it's just like, why is it like, strange you, to you? You don't. I don't know. I don't want my God to necessarily be like us. Like, there's like a reason you're supposed to be like you know praying and all those things, and it's because there's like a difference. Right. And, I don't know. There's something kind of beneath God. Like God should be in a separate category. Yeah. It should be different. Right. Um, it's also like. I mean, it's, it's very, like, very simplistic, but it also, like, limits, uh, like, the way that you can conceive of God, right? Like, so the fact that God could take, like, a concrete form means that, like, like that is an impact on the way that you think of, like, the larger entity that is God. And in a way, it's, like, very limiting as, like, this this definite, like, like, like a being that seems to have, like, whims and, and, like, a desire to, like, now I'm going to, like, put a person version of me, like, in the world. Uh, and, like, that limits, like, how abstract that that vision of God can be more generally. Right. And so it's basically, it's, it's not at all directed by human beings. God shows up when and how he wants to. Um, but humans are basically passive in that. And, like, kind of to, to put a negative spin on the idea that, you know, any moment could be a divine moment because you never know when God's going to show up. Like, you also can't create those moments yourself. Like, you can't, like... Um, you know, bring yourself into a state where you can uh, connect and interact with God. And, and, you know, one of the things which we'll see in later classes is that um, there's another trope in, in Tanakh, which is people saying, like, where is God? Like, God, like, please reveal yourself to me. You've hidden your face from me. Um, people being frustrated with kind of, like, their inability to, um, to connect to God uh, in any kind of regular way um, that God as a person, as every every person, kind of, like, has free will, can decide when he does or doesn't want to be. You can't just, like, kind of, you know, rub a magic lamp and, like, all of a sudden God appears. Um, okay, so I think, like, those are some of the basic points. Um, a couple of other things. It's hard to create uh, any kind of systematic theology around such a God. Like, if God is just acting as a person... Uh, and somewhat unpredictably as a person, um, it's difficult to, to, to kind of create any larger structure around um, how that God expects one to behave or not to behave. Um, and a good example of this is like the way that God interacts with, um, um, with Abraham. That like God just kind of, you know, starts talking to Abraham. It's not clear at all from the text in the Torah like why Abraham deserves to be like the future forefather of the Jewish people. Um, 
the Midrash ends up kind of creating these backstories for Avraham to explain, like, you know, how wonderful he is and all the things he's done, and, like, you know, how he, on his own, kind of, like, realized that there must be a creator of the universe, uh, and, like, you know, threw off idolatry and all that stuff. Um, but the Torah itself is not so clear about that. Um, so there's not so much of a system that you can create such, about such a God. Um, and, of course, at the end of the day, God is really terrifying in this one. Like, you know, once people realize that they are talking with God or with one of God's messengers, they are, you know, afraid. They're incredibly afraid. That's model number one. Model number two, model B, let's say, uh, comes in two forms. Um, Form number one um, is, well, let's just read the text and we'll go with that. Um, So this is from Leviticus Rabbah, which is one of the earliest um, Midrashic compilations, um, probably from the Tanitic period, maybe the Amoraic period. Um, so in Leviticus Rabbah, there's a story about Hillel, uh, one of the rabbis. Hillel's students asked him, Rabbi, where are you going? He said to them to perform a commandment. They said to him, what commandment is Hillel performing? He said to them, the commandment to bathe in the bathhouse. They said to him, this is a commandment? He said to them, yes. If they provide for the person appointed to scrub and clean the images of the kings, which Gentiles erect in their theaters and circuses, and not only that, but he's also exalted among the king's elites, then how much more exalted are we who were created in the image and likeness of God, as it is written, in the image of God, man is created. So, Hillel's argument is um, that Gentile officials are perfectly, you know, they, they love it when, you know, people, uh, when someone, like, takes care of the, their images. Um, I am the image of God, and God is clearly superior to, uh, to Roman rulers. Therefore, I should also, you know, be treated well. So I'm going to go to this bathhouse. So what's the um, image of God? How is God presented here? Well, for one thing, the image is obviously corporeal. Now, now, this. I'm having trouble with the idea that that um, Hillel actually really seriously thinks this. I think this is this is him making some kind of joke. Really. What's the joke? He's he's just basically giving a flippant joke, jokey reason for why he's for, for why he's going to the bathhouse. And there's, no, there's nothing actually wrong with going to the bathhouse, and this is just his way of, of making a joke about it. Right. right. So he, he might be like elevating the, the importance of going to the bathhouse more than necessary. Well, but um, leaving that aside, the argument he does make um, seems to rely on interpretation of this verse, in the image of God man was created, Betzem Elohim Asad HaAdam, an understanding of that verse where what it means to say in the image of God is to say that what? Man looks a lot like God. Like not looks in some abstract sense like actually looks a lot like God. Um, If this wasn't clear enough if you look in the next source uh, from Genesis Rabbah another early Midrashic compilation um, God said let us make a human in our image after our likeness Rabbi Yoshaya said when God created the first human the ministering angels erred and wished to recite holy, holy, holy before him, meaning before Adam. This is akin to a king and his vizier who were in a carriage. 
the residents of the city wished to call the king, O Lord, Domino, which is what it says in the Hebrew, uh, but they did not know which one was him. What did the king do? He pushed the vizier, ejecting him from the carriage. Everyone then realized he was the vizier. Similarly, when God created the first human, the angels erred and wished to recite, Holy, 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 before him. What did God do? He made a deep sleep fall upon him. Everyone then realized that he was a human. Thus it says, Leave the human in whose nostrils are breath alone. For out of what account is he? So again, what does it mean to say that um, God has created the, sorry, man has created the image of God? It means literally that. It means that so much so that the angels themselves are confused about who's who because they look the same. And the only thing that separates them is um, the behavior of these entities. So this in some ways like, shares some features with um, Model A in that there is some confusion about like, um, that there's nothing in, in the way that God looks which like, definitely signals that this is like, clearly God, this is not a human being. Um, that continues here as well, uh, indicating that at least initially, like there really is no difference between the two. So, what kind of what kind of model is this? Like, in in what sense, like, does God have a body? Like, how? What do you think these texts are trying to do? Uh, are trying to convey uh, about God's personhood and God's body here? God is kind of one of us. Yeah. That's a slob like so that. So why does that matter? Right, so these texts, let's, let's say what they don't do. These are not texts in which God, looking like a person, goes down and talks to human beings. These are just descriptions of God. God himself like, is not acting in these stories. Um, why would I care that God is one of us, or that God looks like people, or that people look like God? I mean, like, it doesn't, it doesn't seem so important. Uh, I mean, it's, like, it's, I guess, relatable in a way, but, like, the second source especially doesn't say anything about, like, the, or, or like, what it doesn't say about the abilities of, of God is, is, like, important, uh, or the fact that God can just, like, make, change the nature of man, like, make man be sleeping or whatever. Like, God is still, it doesn't say anything about the power of God or the abilities of God. It just says what God looks like, and, like, that's not, from these sources at least, like, that's not necessarily very important, except as, like, a way that we can imagine God. Right, yeah. And, and there are other um, texts, uh, Migrashim, Tanitic text, Amoraic text, which do talk about um, how amazing God is and all the amazing things that God does. Um, but these don't focus that in particular. Um, they do indicate that God and people look similar, um, well, I, but, uh, the first text does, does sort of say, I mean, that's that similarity is what makes this uh, a mitzvah, right? Like, it's kind of like, so that appearance, you know, and I don't know what that says necessarily about God's power, but it does say something about, I mean, it says something more about people, I guess. Right. You know? right. So one of, the, one of the interesting things about this model is that when you describe God as having a human form, you're actually saying something really nice about humans. Like, if you describe God as having the form of a dog, like, that would say that dogs are probably pretty important. Um, so, um, this model suggests, and there are other midrashim which suggest this, like, even more explicitly, that um, this, the fact that God, that humans look like God 
says that humans are very, very important. Um, play like an important role um, on Earth. Um, and kind of in the way that we talked about last week, that where God's Jewishness, like the way in which God is described as Jewish, says something about, um, about the relationship between Jews and God, describing God as having a body and looking like people, says something about humanity and humanity's relationship with God. So like, you know, last week, you can kind of think of it as a special instance of, of this week, where, you know, talking about God wearing tefillin um, says something about, like, tefillin and about, like, uh, and the importance of Jews in the, cosmo- in, uh, in the cosmos. Um, saying that God and humans look the same says something about, like that for all of humanity. Um, so this, um, this is a, a model you find all across Midrashic literature. And the truth of the matter is, it's very difficult to find in Midrashic literature clear statements that God does not have a body. Like, um, for the most part, um, the, rabbi, the ancient rabbis um, were very comfortable with suggesting that God, uh, that God acts, uh, that God um, has feelings, that God has a body. Um, and these are some of the ways in which, uh, in which that comes out. Um, often, it seems, as a way of kind of saying what is valuable about what human beings do, not just about what God does. Um, there is another track, another way of thinking about God's body, which is a little bit um, different. Saying that God has a body, but that, God is, that, that, that body is very, very different from the bodies that human beings have, even though it is humanoid in some sense. Um, and this gets into discussions of uh, mystical writings and Judaism. Um, I am not an expert in the subject. Um, it's a very interesting topic. Um, it's a very large topic. There seems to be a trend, f- starting from um, the Bible itself, to describe God, uh, or describe kind of ecstatic experiences of God. It's unclear exactly how kind of a thousand years, like the first, you know, the first millennium uh, CE, how all of the different mystical texts are related to one another. Um, but before that, we can say like one of the first texts is found in, in the first chapter of Ezekiel, which we're not going to read, um, but it describes some kind of vision that the prophet Ezekiel has of God, where um, God has this chariot, this merkava. Um, it is described in incredible detail um, towards the end, if you look at uh, page four towards the bottom. Um, Uh, look at verse 26. And above the firmament that was over their heads was the likeness of a throne as the appearance of a sapphire stone, and upon the likeness of the throne was a likeness as the appearance of a man upon it, uh, uh, upon it above. So part of this vision is a, a description of this central entity who looks like a person, but a person who you would never get confused and think like, oh, it's, you know, it's just one more person on the street. Like, this is clearly some kind of divine entity. Um... And so this is kind of the other trend, thinking about God as, as being this um, incredibly exalted, incredibly different kind of human, um, human being. Um, now, directly or indirectly, this model gets carried forward um, through, uh, through the next several centuries, and it develops out of the, um, a set of literature called the Hechalot literature. Um, the Hechalot literature... Um, many, many of them describe um, these journeys that human beings have um, 
they're described as going down, but like it kind of proceeding towards God, um, towards either the role, either the goal of, of kind of unifying with God, like in some kind of mystical experience, or towards the goal of um, becoming something like an angel. Um, it's unclear when these texts were written. Um, it's possible they were written at the same time as the mission and the Gemara. It's possible they were written later. It's also really unclear whether there were influences on these texts from Islam, from Gnosticism, from Christianity. Like, we really don't know this stuff yet. There's a lot of theories out there right now about it. Um, the texts themselves, uh, some of them are very fragmentary. Um, and uh, we, so we have some of them from you know, the Geniza. A lot of them actually show up in Ashkenaz in, in around the 12th or 13th centuries um, when European mystics um, are interested in these things, and so they record some fragments of these texts for us. So, so we have some of them. Um, interesting, field of, interesting field of study. Uh, it's not something which you usually What's learn about. What's the Hebrew again? Um, Hechalot literature. Hechalot or Merkava literature. Um, uh, so there's, yeah, a number, yeah. there's a number of texts uh, in that category. Um, they're interested in, uh, they're often very interested in angels as well. Um, but one of the things they're interested in is uh, visions of God. Uh, and one text in particular, which is kind of like, it's not, it's not itself part of the Hechalot literature, um, but is a, kind of adopted by it in several instances, is this book called Shi'ur Koma, um, kind of the, um, the measurements of God's, like, of God's height, of God's, um, God's being. Um, again, unclear where it comes from. And this is just a, a kind of random sampling of this text uh, on eight, uh, source 8b. Rabbi Ishmael said, How much is the height of the body of the Holy One, blessed be he, the Holy Blessed One, who is hidden from all creatures? The parasang, this is like some kind of um, Persian a unit of measurement, of God's feet fill the entire world. As it says, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. The height of God's souls is 30 million parasangs. God's right soul is called the, well, here's some like random words, and the letters, and something else. From God's right soul to the angle is 150 million parasangs, similar to the left. Right angle is called, it has a name, another name. God's right angle, you get the idea. Like, the whole text is like this. Like, <coughs> these, like, unimaginably giant distances uh, describing, um, describing God, mixed in uh, with, the technical term for this is uh, nomina barbara, like, kind of barbarian names, like, uh, or kind of foreign names. These, these kind of nonsense words, um, which are supposed to represent the, like, the names of God's body parts. Um... Interestingly enough, some of these editions have God like being definitely male, and like through descriptions of God's penis as well. Uh, I think this version doesn't have it, um, but like in in these visions, God is definitely male. Um, now, what are these texts for? Why are these texts written? What's what's interesting? Like, why why would one want to have a text which describe which describes God's massive body in such detail? What do you think? My first question is, how is this productive? This just seems kind of like a silly exercise. Right, it's just a description. It's like... Right. So yeah, why, would, why would one... Like, well, if, like, if you're in a paradigm already where God, like, has a body, uh, and, like, most people are, like, maybe, like, not particularly educated or something, uh, like, to describe God in terms that are, like, uh, like, beyond comprehension in their size, uh, like, 
maybe strikes awe into people and like kind of shatters their vision, which was like maybe a, a lesser God. And this is to say that like, you know, God is so much bigger than you thought. Like God is so much not just in terms of size, but like everything that goes along with that. Like you can't even conceive how great God is. And who are you proving that to? Like who? who like lay people. Like someone who's like had one of these like experiences, then like conveys that to people. Like this is how giant God is. Like, you can't even conceive of it. Great. And you have that, I mean, in, in um, contemporary literature as well, like descriptions of, like, no matter how hard we try, God will never be able to praise you. Like, no matter how good we are. Like, in, in Nishmat and Shabbat, um, we have that description. Um, so that's one way of doing it. And I think, like, uh, in Model B1, it's definitely part of what's going on in saying, like, there's, like, a whole genre of, of, um, uh, of comparisons between, like, Melech Basar Vadam and HaKadosh Baruch like, you know, a flesh and blood king, like, he can do this. But God can do this, which is the thing which is so much cooler. Like, you know, flesh and blood king, he makes coins, and every coin looks the same. God makes humans, like, kind of, like, out of a mold, and, like, every human looks different. Um, so that's, like, that's part of it. This description, this, like, the way, the, the kind of, like, sheer massiveness of God's, uh, of God's body, and also, like, the lack of any attempt to put this in, in terms that are relevant for human beings. And also, like, all these strange words suggest, like, there might be something else going on here. Um, other thoughts? Like, why, why would I use this text? Why would I care about this text? Yeah. I'm thinking this, this was actually a, a, a step towards saying that God is incorporeal. You know, it's like when you start talking about a God who is, you know, of these giant, giant dimensions, you're, you're almost, you're saying, like, there's this something this giant and it couldn't possibly exist, so God can't really have a body. So one of the kind of paradoxical parts about describing God's body in such detail is that understanding God as being this massive human affirms that God is clearly not a human. He's clearly something else, maybe looks like a human in some form, but um, it, God is so different and so much larger and so much more powerful that one cannot imagine God to be a human in any real sense. And so in some ways, even though this is kind of, like, Shirokuma is kind of like the most, like, directly descriptive text about God and Judaism, it's also one in which God is, like, incredibly unrelatable. Even though we started out this class by saying that, like, one of the nice things about talking about God as a person is that you can relate to God. This text actually uh, makes that much more difficult. In that vein, also, it's like, uh, like, not even that we can't imagine a person in these dimensions, but like we can't imagine anything we don't in our entire realm of existence that is of these dimensions. Suggesting that like maybe God is is out of like a higher dimension, even to the point like where maybe like this this exists within God. That, like God is so big. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, like, where would this go in our paradigm? Like where would the, where would that being be? Right. So I think that kind of gets into um, the question of. Like, what's the, what's the, why was this text written, how are you supposed to actually use it in practice? Like, um, which, again, is, like, a question which, um, today there is still no clear answer to it, um, but just to suggest a few possibilities, um, it's possible this is just a literary text. It's possible this was not meant to be part of any kind of practice. It's also possible, um, this is part of some kind of ecstatic experience of God, um, in that, this is, um, this is meant to help uh, individuals kind of reach a point through some kind of meditative practice where they can um, I, um, perhaps merge with the divine uh, in some way or 
uh, or commune with the divine, but uh, this is this is kind of like a, a text which um, which helps one kind of focus one's energy. So it's possible that this is what the text is for. Um, if you look at the next page, just like another part of this text, um, it refers to Shirokoma as a as a as a Mishnah. It says, whoever knows the measure of the height of the Creator and the praise of the Holy One is protected from all creatures, secure in being a child of the world to come, and they will lengthen his days. So it suggests like there's something there's something there's, there's a kind of charm element to, to this. If you say this enough, it'll be good for you. Um, and if you think about um, the use of kind of like magical names of God um, in this text, it's possible that, that, that texts like this were used as a way of kind of summoning um, an experience of God. Um, so um, one scholar, Peter Schaefer, uh, who's written about this text, suggested that um, there, you have to understand like all Hechalo texts as being um, in some sense magical, uh, in that it's not just about like good deeds or like you know being a righteous person that gets you to God. It's actually a kind of how-to manual for like if you say these words, or, like if you do these things, and like you will get an experience of God. Um, which, to contrast it with Model A, Model A is one where God's just going to show up and I can't do anything about it. This is exactly the opposite. This is a model where I can like say magic words and like I will have an experience of God. Um, and also by contrast, in this model, in Shiorkoma, God is not described as moving. God just exists. It's kind of like a static image. Um, so again, in thinking about God as kind of like interacting with the world, like this is an image of God, but it's an image of God which like kind of stays an image. It does not turn into a movie um, about God. So, How does, is this stuff all post-Second Temple destruction? Or? Yes. So, I mean, These texts are definitely written post-Temple. I mean, there's a question about like, does the tradition out of which these emerge, does that, is, is that um, earlier? Probably not, but never know. I mean, because it's interesting, because it could be, you also like, see this vision of God as replacing the temple in some ways. It's kind of like, well, you don't have this majestic, you know, physical building, but, you know, there's this even more majestic thing that you can't see, and that's God. Sure. Uh, and you can imagine this um, as one reaction among many reactions to the loss of the temple um, another reaction might be codification of law like you know ethics will be will, will work for us instead of that another one might be um, messianic expectation one of the interesting things about Hechalot literature is that it does not accept, expect Mashiach to come um, because this kind of ability to commune with God um, or to to become something like an angel is kind of a replacement for that vision. Hmm. Um, so there's many different ways of kind of dealing with a Judaism which does not have a temple. Uh, it seems like Hechel literature um, is another one of those. Um, so yeah, this is this is what we'll call Model B. Now, these are the two major models I wanted I wanted to show you. Um, I think both of them are a little bit foreign to us. Uh, even though we're used to thinking about God, or, or talking about God in some sense um, as, as being like a person, like using the same words we use for people to describe God, and certainly the Torah does that as well. Um, both of these models are God being a person in a kind of very extreme way. It's so like Shi'ur Koma describes God's personhood as being like the most interesting part about, about God. Like, what's interesting is not the fact that like, you know, God redeems people, not the fact that God 
meets out punishment or judgment. What's important is that God is huge. God is just huge. Uh, that itself is important to know. So that is kind of like an extreme way of thinking about, of thinking about like God's personhood. Many of the other ways of thinking about God as being a person will kind of like acknowledge in the background that like you can think about God as having a body that's totally fine and, and maybe even like assumed. Um, but aren't interested in like God's body in and of itself, interested in like God as being a person who can take on human um, human characteristics. Um, against these, just to, just to kind of like fill out um, the picture, is um, Maimonides. Um, and Maimonides starts out in book one, chapter one of the guide uh, to the perplexed by saying that this is definitely not what is going on in the Bible. Um, and Maimonides is not the first one to object to the idea that um, God is a person in some sense um, and to be upset by the fact that God is described as a person uh, in the Bible. Um, there are translations of the Torah which attempt to kind of reword certain passages so that it doesn't look like God is interacting with human beings so that God is like is, um, has human qualities. Um, there are also um, Karaites. Uh, Karism is a, a sect of Judaism that emerges um, in um, the early Middle Ages uh, in Islamic, um, Islamic hate territories. Um, Karaites pointed at the Talmud all the time and said, the Talmud describes God as having a body. There are like stories in the Talmud where like, you know, people talk to God. Um, that's how we know that the rabbis aren't authentic transmitters of Judaism. Because like, how could that possibly be allowed? So Maimonides is not the first person to be upset about this. But uh, I give you this passage kind of in contrast um, because uh, here he describes um, the passage we discussed before that um, man is created in the image of God but Selem Elohim and it says, like, it says that Selem doesn't mean literally Selem um, and tries to do this kind of etymological analysis of the word selem and the word zmut, which means likeness and image, uh, sorry, image and likeness uh, in the Torah, to say that these don't have to mean literally images. They can mean some kind of quality that is shared between God um, and human beings. Um, and in fact, like, this matters so much to Maimonides that like, if, you, if you go through the first book, there's three books to Maimonides' Guide to the Perplexed, the first book is basically a vocabulary study. Like Every chapter is about a couple of words trying to give an analysis of the terms and kind of defang them, kind of like neutralize them, make sure they don't have, um, they don't require us to think about God as having a body because as J.R. mentioned much earlier, um, Maimonides is interested in negative theology, a theology in which we can't describe God at all. Um, and we're going to talk about that later in, um, uh, later on uh, in the series of classes. Did you say he is or is not a proponent of negative theology? He is. Yeah, he is the major proponent of negative theology. Um, and an important influence on later negative theologians um, in outside of outside of Judaism as well. So you might be thinking now, okay, these are two models of God. They're both kind of weird. Um, I don't really relate to them either way, even though like you kind of like in a soft way talk about God as having as as, as having feelings perhaps. Um, on Shabbat, perhaps you say "Am Mirot" at the end of at the end of services, which is a long poem uh, written um, by the by the German Pietists, the same people who brought us Shirokama, or who at least published Shirokama. Uh, and Shirokama talks about God as having a body. We kind of have that, but we don't really think about it a lot. 
what I would kind of argue for you is that um, it's important to use, uh, first of all, to not feel embarrassed about um, thinking about God as having as being a person. Um, to know, like, be confident that there are good supports in Judaism for God being a person in various ways, and that, like, if one one's kind of natural instinct is to think in that way, that is okay. People have done it for a long time. Um, Rabbi tells us people who are better than Rambam have done it, so it's, it's okay. Um, but beyond that, um, it shouldn't just be about um, kind of being better than Rambam. It should also be um, that there is something, there's something powerful in thinking about, uh, about God as being a person and kind of like using that language to create some kind of dialogue between oneself and God. Um, or even imagine like God's body as a, as a kind of point of meditation. And I bring you as an example of this, um, a poem by a friend of mine. Um, this is the youngest person who has ever been on any of my star sheets. Yosef um, Rosen. I didn't want to ask him when he was born. I felt awkward. Um, so, well, in the last 50 he's around my age. Um, I heard him uh, recite this poem last year um, at a Hadar um, Shabbaton. And when I was putting together this class, I kind of remembered it uh, and asked him if I could put it on the source sheet. Um, so it's a very long poem. You can read it. It's really cool. Um, but just to read the beginning of it, um, so it's called For a God Who Flirts. On good days, God brings more than roar and voice. He flirts fast with me. I shy. I kind of gotta. Otherwise, we'd be long past flirting and deep into the promised land. And no one wants to go there. Friday nights are our time. He puts away sermon and shirt, and together we hide from the orthodoxy of his congregants. In our few hours, broken from faster time, we engorge the hour. We let the chit-chat undulate and last a long time. One time I stayed over too long, and there was some bitchy fiasco. With some god cow made of gold, shit got weird. Since then, he <laughs> only lets me stay over 39 nights and days at a time. Slow time, he tells me a little of what he did this week. I tell him a little of what I did. We slow. You know, we flirts. I cuddle talk with his unbelievable God, not because his is the hidden glory, nor because I believe in him, which I don't, but because he's a big sweetie, pure celestial sweetness. To whom doeth the praise arise? To him whose proportions are delectable limbs, long angelic names, all muscle-toned and tuned to excellence. He is soft protestation, immaculate constellation. To whom doeth the praise arise? To him whose lips are labial in fervor, body and hymns of flame, all his words, migrations of vast ecstasies, all his dense gravity, our pulse, our praise. And his thighs, oh, they're just millennial, the end of me and all else mellifluous. All in all, his body is 236 parasangs tall, and the measure of a parasang of God is three miles, and a mile is 10,000 yards, a yard, three spans of his span, and a span fills the whole world, as it is written, to have meted out heaven with the span. In other words, he's got a big bod, surrounded by overdone beautista queens whose hairs are on fire, all singing, all his glory pettable, all his glory tasteable, all his glory delicious. Um, and you can read the rest for yourself. But um, I really like this poem. I like it because um, I... It's easy to see a poem like this as being transgressive in some way, and I want to argue that it's not. I'm going to argue that this, this is actually kind of de rigueur. This is, should be normal uh, in, in the ways that we think about and create images 
uh, of God as being a person, that it is not a problem to um, to talk about uh, God and God's body uh, in this way, and that um, in our own relationships, in our own relationships with God, we should not feel hampered in any way, thinking like this is the image that I that I am kind of drawn to naturally. Like I am naturally like imagine God to be thus. Um, but I feel bad about that because I feel like I, like somewhere in me I feel like I shouldn't be doing that. Um, what what I kind of wanted to say in this class is that um, I hope you kind of resist that urge, you go with your initial impulse and um, allow for um, images of God which which kind of speak to you more naturally, even though those images of God are God acting as a person. Um, that's it for the class. Um, I want to make there's one more comment before we end, which is that. Um, as I've been like kind of going through the material um, for this class, one of the things that struck me is that like talking about God. Well, wait a second. When I was putting together this class, one of the things that took me a long time was to figure out what to call it. I was thinking, should I call it God is? Should I call it God as? Um, and I'm thinking now that maybe it should be something like God through. Um, meaning, maybe what we should be looking at is not just images of God through Jewish history, but kind of different modes. Uh, different kind of perspectives out of which we talk to God. So, you know, interacting with God, like God through happiness, God through anger, God through loneliness, um, that perhaps, like, that's actually like, a more um, more primal way and, like, speaks more directly to our relation, to our experience of God than to try to describe images. Um, so I say that to say the syllabus is a little bit open right now, um, and it's possible it will be class along those lines uh, in the future that um, was not originally described.